Fear is crippling and it gets in the way of our dreams because it stifles us and it can stop you progressing along that path. So you definitely need determination and you need to be able to step forward and not have this kind of fear of failure. For somebody that's thinking about something, it's just about believing in yourself and then cracking on with it. Just start it, do it now. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Get the Idea podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Horgan, and today I had the pleasure of chatting with my dear friend, Ali Hill, a hot yoga pioneer, entrepreneur, mum, and all-round inspirational woman. We talk about her wild start as a pole dancer in Japan, how she survived breast cancer, opened one of the first hot yoga studios in the UK, and her journey to becoming a mum at the age of 50. Ali's a fascinating human being that keeps going in the face of adversity. I think you're going to really enjoy today's episode. Ali Hill, hi. Hi. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Lisa. (laughs) I sat down this morning and I was writing a few little notes as to what direction I wanted this conversation to go in and I have to say your life is pretty incredible and I felt like as I was writing the notes of the things I wanted to talk to you about you're like a character in a movie I just (laughs) you're like a character in several movies because you've had loads of major things happen in your life and you've just dealt with them brilliantly and you're like super inspiring so I want to start from the beginning. We'll hit on all those different characters along the way. And then I want to discuss the lessons learned because you are like the epitome of the entrepreneur. And that's why I wanted to get you on here because you're one of my closest friends. You're really inspiring to be around. And, you know, this podcast is really about making shit happen. A lot of people have so many ideas. And for most of us, I think the ideas just stay in their heads. But you seem to just go for it. And you always have a new idea on the go and you've always got loads of stuff going on. So I want to try and look into the psyche of Ali Hill and see if we can all take notes and be inspired by you. Oh, babes, that's a big, 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 big compliment. And uh, yeah, somehow I don't know how I've got to where I have, but really happy to share. And um, yeah, I appreciate all of those thoughts and comments. So let's go back to you as a kid. Like what was Ali like at school oh god school terrible bottom of everything super rebellious always in trouble had a problem with authority (laughs) I mean I was a bit of a nightmare at school and I didn't do well at all academically I'm dyslexic and I wasn't really into anything I was just sort of a little bit lost I think through my sort of formative school years and I just used to play up a lot really I think I found fun in trouble I think it's quite a common trait, isn't it, in like entrepreneurs or people who go out and make shit happen in adulthood because they're kind of not used to following the rules in some way. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, definitely didn't like following rules and I, and I, I still don't. And um, I, I don't know whether that is coming from, you know, my father who has passed away but um, many years ago, but he was a huge risk taker. He was a gambler, a successful one, actually. He was the most successful bookmaker in the country at one time and was on like a really old show that ITV did about people who made a lot of money from unusual jobs. 
And he was an international poker player. And he had, well, at the end of his life, he died at 66 years of age. But he even had a big um, cannabis factory going on. And he was a real character. You Now, you say that I'm possibly from a movie. I don't know that that's true at all. But my dad definitely was. He was like a gangster, really, and uh, super intelligent, very funny. and very very fearless and I suppose a little bit of that has rubbed off on me and certainly he was in and out of ball stall in and out of prison and then did make a lot of money and we had quite a privileged upbringing actually like I had horses went to a private school went on skiing holidays but then constantly was like getting in trouble at school and yeah that that kind of academic private school life didn't suit me I went to boarding school for a bit and um yeah just thrived under sort of getting in trouble with with the naughtiest people I could find (laughs) that makes total sense now okay and did you look up to your dad yeah massively yeah I I did yeah he was cool we were close he had other children from another marriage and the other three siblings that I had one full brother and two half brother and sister none of those three got along with him but I did. And my mum always said, oh, you're definitely the favourite. And it was because I was most like him in some ways, really, in many ways. And so we had a, we had a really good connection. And um, yeah, I mean, I massively looked up to my dad. And he, I mean, some people would say he wasn't a very nice character, but my brother would probably tell you that. But for me, he was like everything to me. Oh, and he passed away, didn't he? Um, when did he? When did he die? It's got to be like, gosh, about 15 years ago. And then my mom a year later. So I lost them both from cancer, 12 months apart. Um, yeah, a good, good sort of 14, 15 years ago now, quite a long time. That's a blow to have them both go so close together. Yeah, it was it was really difficult. Like my, my dad, like many people, have watched somebody close to them die. And I, I know that you, you've had a good friend pass away. And when you know that they're dying, because like, cancer obviously it can be quite a slow process which for my dad it was um sadly and so you're sort of just watching them become a shadow of themselves and and that was a painful process when my mum um passed away it she got diagnosed and was dead within 17 days so there was no sort of slow like looking at them knowing that they're not going to be here it was it was just almost like a bullet to the head and in and for me that was easier and I was already grieving one. So the second one, it just kind of like continued the grieving. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I've, I found strength of character through that experience. And I was very fortunate that I had an amazing yoga community to hold me. And I feel like, of course, it's sad and you grieve and, and you always miss them. But I feel like I learned that I was quite a strong character, a strong person through like losing them so close together and experiencing loss and death for the first time really because I didn't have grandparents that I knew so it was my first experience of death and dying and loss and you learn from that I was fairly strong through the process I think yeah we always grow a lot don't we from those experiences how did that affect your own obviously to have two parents dying from cancer well I was going to touch on this a bit later actually but we may as well jump into it 
now because it's connected, but you had your own cancer diagnosis, didn't you? Um, how long ago was that? Five, five years ago? Nearly five years. In fact, in May, it's five years. So that's a good, that's a good uh, ring the bell. Ding, ding. That's a good. I got there. You're all sort of wanting to get to five years and I am, which is wonderful. But I suppose when I first got diagnosed, I obviously went into a bit of shock. And the first three days, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to die too. My parents died. I'm going to die young. And I just went into a really dark place processing it and just thinking, oh, because of my mum and dad, that I was next. Mm -hmm. And of course, once I'd seen the oncologist and the surgeon and, and realized my diagnosis was actually a really positive one, I found it really early and I really trusted my oncologist. I was fortunate and they said, we don't think that you need chemotherapy. So I opted not to. I went and had radiotherapy and I had hormone therapy, which were drugs that I've had to take for three and a half years, which was the hardest part, actually, because I'm so sensitive to changes in my hormones. And I found that incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult, because the drugs made me kind of crazy and a bit depressed and massively affected my moods, like having PMT times a thousand. So that was the hardest part through all of it, really. Um, but yeah, after those first three days, and I, I recognized that my prognosis was pretty positive, and I just went forward one foot in front of the other, really. And I had the support of my partner, Leon Taylor, and he was my superman. He was amazing and supportive. And I was not feeling alone because I had him and my friends and got through it. You know, it's really common, though, isn't it? So uh, here we are five years later. And how important is it, do you think, to have that kind of community around you? You spoke of the yoga community and then your relationship. How important is that? I think it's everything. Like certainly when my mum and dad died and I had my yoga studio in Birmingham at the time, I had Brighton and then Birmingham and threw myself into work and teaching yoga and practicing yoga and just rolling out my mat and getting on that mat. And that was a lifesaver, really. Mm -hmm. And the same with through the cancer. It's like I've always had yoga in my life and it's massively beneficial and helpful to physical and mental well-being, as we all know. And I think when you get diagnosed with something where you're sort of faced with your mortality, you do have a, for a short window anyway, I had a shift in perspective and you realize that life is all about your friendships and your community. We worry so much about what we look like and maybe getting attached to material things and actually in that moment where I had this kind of like facing mortality for the first time in my life for me personally you really see a new way of living and I slip straight back into your old way of living like very quickly but when you have that clarity life is all about your friendships and your community that's where it begins and that's where it ends and that's how I felt anyway and I realized that worrying about what you look like or you know these small things it none of that matters that's beautiful it's a gift isn't it having that it's a, it is a wake-up call everyone says it because we get so complacent don't we and we get so bogged down by life the everyday and to have that wake-up call because we're all heading for death <laughs> like we're all yeah. heading. Yeah, and then yeah, it's yeah. just a diagnosis is like right are, are you awake to the fact that you're dying right now and you might be dying a bit quicker than everybody else around you, you know? So. Yeah, exactly. It's something we're not going to put off, are we? <laughs> we're all going to get there in the end. And I, I like this um, 
when your body ends up in the earth, you become the food for the worms and the bugs and that starts again. And yeah, life and death. The cycle. It's all connected to yoga as well, spirituality. So on that note, I want to I wanna just backtrack a little bit because post-school and before finding yoga, you had a quite an interesting period of your life, which I wanted to talk about. Um, when you ended up in Japan. Well, they were wild days. <laughs> Tell me what you were getting up to in, in Japan, Ali Hill. <laughs> well, I went to Japan to visit a friend that was studying Japanese at university. It was the early 90s, early mid 90s. She said, like, come over here, you can earn loads of money. And I went over and I got jobs teaching English and in hostess bars. And I was in a hostess bar one night and one of the customers um, came in and he had these fake hundred dollar bills. And I was like, what are you doing with those? And he said, there's a pole dancing club on the eighth floor with Gaijin women, Western women, essentially. Oh, and he's like, they earn a lot of money. And I was like, oh, pole dancers, I'm going to go and have a gander. So up I went. I remember walking in, feeling super intimidated, looking at the beautiful woman dancing on the stage and thinking, I don't think I can do that. You know, I had this like, private school education that wasn't a thing that you should be doing <laughs> uh, but he showed me like the money that they were making and money definitely talks and I was just like wow I mean it was like a thousand dollars a night type thing back then and I um just said right sign me up I'm gonna come the next day me and my friend and I I remember going in drinking vodka like screwdrivers <laughs> vodka and orange <laughs> in the bar beforehand to get a bit of courage and then off I went yeah 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 I didn't know how to dance around a pole and like pole dancing and this was way before pole dancing was a thing this Mm. was like quite a taboo at the time really Uh, and yeah it wasn't cool like now you know we're even starting pole fitness classes in one of a couple of our studios like everybody does it right it's very common and um, it's just like mainstream but back then it really wasn't and I and I questioned whether I should be doing it, like morally, and quickly got over that, thank God. And then I learned to do it and I loved it. And I did it on and off for about five or six years, um, maybe seven. And I became financially independent because of it. I learned about my sensuality, my sexuality. I went from being a girl to a woman in that period of my life because of that. And I found it super empowering. I love the women that I worked with. They were all women from Israel, Canada, Australia, um, the States. And we all became really good friends. And some of those people who I met there, they're still a couple of my best friends that I live nearby down here in Brighton, actually. And it was a really, it was a hedonistic time. It was a lot of fun. Um, I was very confident and I earned a hell of a lot of money and I travel around the world on that. And looking back now at the age of, I've just turned 50 and I look back to those years in Japan and that sort of traveling time in my life. And they were for sure, I'd say the, the sort of most fun, best times yeah, and pivotal in your growth as a woman by the sounds of it. Yeah, definitely. I literally went from like being, I wasn't a naive girl, but I, because I was quite a streetwise, you know, rebellious character, but I certainly hadn't thought about myself like as a, as a woman and, you know, the sexuality and the sensuality that came from learning uh, to kind of master the art of pole dancing. And 
And I really loved that. I love learning about myself in that way. And when I wasn't doing that job anymore, that has carried through into my grown-up adult life, I guess. And yeah, it taught me a lot about myself. And in terms of confidence? Yeah, yeah. I grew in confidence doing it. I, I was pretty confident 20-something-year-old. And I've always felt quite confident with the, this vehicle that I'm in here, this body, my looks. And yeah, it was empowering. Yeah, I'd have to say that about you, actually. From the moment I met you, I remember I knew of you because you own several yoga studios and at the time I was a yoga teacher so I, I knew of you but I hadn't met you and we were at a mutual friends party and I remember we had our first conversation and I did actually think to myself like this is a woman who's really comfortable in her own skin I saw that confidence within you and part of me was like oh I want a piece of that I want to <laughs> be around this woman you're so sweet you're so <laughs> sweet so from Japan you then went on to become a yoga teacher. Tell me about that moment when you discovered yoga. Was that in Japan as well? That was a class over there, wasn't it? I did a little bit with one of the girls I worked for in the, in the pole dancing club. Then I went to Australia and it was my second ever public yoga class that I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And then fast forward a few months, I ended up in Vancouver at the first ever Bikram yoga studio. Sweaty hot room, carpet on the floor, yelling at you, you know, the old-fashioned Bikram way. And I was like, right, this is the one for me. I'm going to go on the Bikram yoga training. Mm -hmm. That was in one, 12 years ago. Yeah, again, ahead of the curve, before yoga was even a thing also. It seems to be like you're always this step <laughs> ahead of everyone else. So just for context, you know, what generally happens is people go to Bikram yoga training and um, <clears throat> it kind of originated more in the States that like you'd see people going off and then opening their own Bikram studio and it's part of a franchise, right? But Ali Hill comes back and says, I'm not doing that. I'm doing my own thing. Basically, yeah. Found it very restrictive, Bikram yoga. As you know yourself as a Bikram teacher, right? And I wanted to be able to offer different things and I wanted to be able to offer my own teacher training because I remember not long before my dad died, telling him um, about the Bikram training and, and all of that. And I opened Yoga Haven and he said, oh, you know, that Bikram, he made so much money on his teacher trainings. Why don't you do teacher training? <laughs> And I, I did in the end. I just wanted to have my own brand and go my own way with it. And that's what I did. And then I never looked back. And of course, I got criticized a lot at the time from the Bitcoin community, but they did end up all jumping shit later on. And um, yeah, I was the first. I think there was a couple of Bitcoin studios in the UK at the time when I came back to the UK myself to open a studio. But I believe that I was the first to offer hot yoga in the UK. And now, of course, it's everywhere, all over the place now. It was a really ballsy thing to do because when you go on a training, everyone's like thinking the same and, you know, you have to respect the teacher and the leader or whatever it is and you have to respect each other as teachers. And that kind of thinking is very restrictive because it's, it's like keeping you in a box, you know, especially a franchise like that. But the fact that you just went, screw it, I'm just going to do it, when you had this pushback from, I'm sure, from like other teachers as well, other studio owners kind of. Oh, yeah. I had, I had a really tough time, actually. Mm -hmm. I had a really tough time. I remember Bikram's 
secretary coming over from LA and saying, you can't do this. And I was like, well, I'm in a different jurisdiction and actually I can. But it was, it was pretty ballsy. I remember like losing a bit of sleep over it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, thank God for that, because I was able to expand my brand to offer teacher trainings way before any of the others did and mm-hmm. to do something a little more unique. It was the right decision. Yeah, absolutely. And then look at what happened to the Bikram Empire. We were discussing this when we, we, we laugh about the Bikram days and I'm super grateful for it. I'm grateful for him creating this yoga because it really changed my life. I know it changed yours massively. Sent is in a completely different direction. I've met the most amazing people through Bikram yoga. I grew as a person immensely. It saved me in some ways as well, because I was really depressed before I started practicing yoga with no kind of direction. And it gave me something that was pretty life-changing. And we laugh, don't we, Al? Because the Bikram yoga, if you don't know, in the hot yoga, it's like you, you wear the tiniest of clothes and it's in the hottest of rooms. And in the early days, like you said, all the studios is this, had carpet on the floor, which was really Really odd, but again, this group thinking of like, that's the way of doing it. That's the way Bikram likes it. You must have it like this, even though it was stinky, especially if you went to any of the New York studios, like in the early days, like uh, they were just so gross. Yeah, they were so smelly. That's for sure. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I'm sure most people that went on the Bikram training, like, you know, that style of yoga, when you get into it and you've really got into it, it was a life changer. And, And anyone now getting into yoga, if you practice consistently, it is a life changer. It changes your your whole way of being, really. And it's uh, quite magical and metamorphosis takes place. And it's a really wonderful thing to be a part of. And, you know, obviously there's been the Netflix documentary about Bikram and you can see the the people who kind of like, well, he he changed my life and in some ways saved us or whatever. And And then there's the other side that are like the other half of you that's like, well, he really you know, abuse his power and, and all of that. But I think it's good to know where you came from. And I wouldn't have had Yoga Haven, I doubt, without, without my experience of Bikram. And uh, it was massively changed my life. And, you know, here I am. And I am grateful for my journey with him. So here you are with how many yoga studios do you have? I have five right now. Yeah. No plans to open anymore. And then on top of that, you have a, a teacher training? Yeah, lots of teacher trainings uh, in the UK and abroad and online. And uh, yeah, that's where I spend a lot of my time on teacher training. Mm -hmm. In the most beautiful. Do you still have in Greece? Yeah, we go to Epidavros twice a year. It's a really beautiful teacher training. It's Epidavros is in mainland Greece. And Epidavros in Greek means the center of the aura. And it was in history, a place of like a center of healing, essentially, where all the physicians would come and even in Greek mythology, the stories about it being a place of healing. And it really is a special place to do teacher training. It's so picturesque. And we've got a beautiful yoga shala on the top floor overlooking the sea right on the water's edge. It's really special. And I've been going there for about 10 years now, I think. And then we also do some London-based courses. And in the pandemic, I created a teacher training online. And, and that's an option for people that don't have another option which suits some people. But yeah, busy really, babes. I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, you're always busy. So you mentioned the pandemic there as well. So how did you navigate those times? Because for you, hot yoga studio in London that requires physical bodies to attend, sweating right next to each other. 
Yeah, not great if you've got a pandemic. <laughs> um, basically, yeah, I mean, look, every business was hit hard. And um, yeah, Hot Yoga Studios also were. And I guess I think I've said things in this podcast around money, but actually money was never a massive motivator for me. I don't hold it tightly. And so when we shut up, I, I kind of enjoyed the, the peace and the quiet there for a while. Um, as I think many of us did. And then, of course, you start to get bored and then your landlords want the rent and then you're getting into a bit of financial difficulty. And I had some landlords that were amazing and others that whatever their position couldn't help in the same way. And it has made it tough. The actual studios are still financially challenged and haven't got out of some of the debts that we got into during the pandemic. So I'm not sure exactly what the future of all of the studios will be. We're still sort of holding on and we'll see what happens. But we we lost a lot of clients to online, I think. I think yoga studios in general have all changed. I know a lot of them have closed down and are struggling. And I think that a percentage, for us, it was a third of our clients never came back. We've got some new ones, but old ones left as well. So roughly a third of our turnover has disappeared. And of course, that's a lot of the profit. Um, and I think that is due to people discovering it online in the pandemic, realizing you can get amazing teachers for free or cheap online. And and if you're someone that that suits, then I think they're not coming back or they're still can't get over the fact that we're in a big room together, close proximity. Mm. There's still a few people like that, I think, as well. I'm not sure what the future exactly will be of the studios, but the teacher trainings bounce back well. And um, my baby was born. <laughs> yes. Yeah, let's talk about that as well. I mean, again, this is what I'm saying. This is multiple movies because this is another journey as well. The the journey of becoming a yeah. mom. I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but it's pretty. Oh, I'm very open, very open. Yeah, so um, my little boy Ziggy was born through surrogacy off back of having a very long journey to motherhood with IVF and then being diagnosed with cancer. So the path of becoming a mother was not a straightforward one. And I put it on the back burner for a while and then obviously had the whole cancer thing. And it's really after I recovered from all of that, that we discussed it again. And we had had rounds of IVF and it was sort of in the middle of that, that I got told I had breast cancer. So we put things on pause. And then when I got better, we had some embryos that we then used with a wonderful surrogate that we were blessed to find or she found us actually and Ziggy was born through surrogacy and had you have told me a few years before that I would have had a little one in this way I'd have been like no way there's no chance I'd ever do that but of course when things are taken away from you and you don't get left with too many choices then your perspective changes and I realized that I really wanted him and so did Leon and we decided why not why not take a different path and my good friend said to me at the time do it Al because this hopefully will inspire other women to know that they can do it this way and I thought well I'm a trailblazer in some ways so why not do it in the journey to motherhood as well and um, he is three now yeah your journey your life is just not it's just not like everybody else's. <laughs> you have this great tenacity 
And you said this to me last time I saw you in Brighton quite recently, actually. You were like, once I've made up my mind, I can't let it go. Yeah. Determined personality. So I guess I, I had lots of yoga studios. I've opened lots of yoga studios. And I think initially when you complimented me on, you know, people think of ideas, but they don't do them. It's like when I get an idea, I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And when I want something, I've got to go for it. And it's this determination, which is great, but also can sometimes be a, <laughs> be a challenge because I was determined to have my little boy and I was going to find a way to do it. And I wasn't going to give up and nothing was going to stand in my way. And I have ended up getting Ziggy because of that, but it wasn't always easy. And it was quite a painful process in many ways. My dream of being a motherhood suddenly felt shattered because I've been given this breast cancer diagnosis. And then I had to process it. And then I was like, no, hang on, there is a way and you can do it and you are going to do it. And then, you know, not giving up, not giving up. And then our little Ziggy, our little Ziggy was born. Oh, and he's the best. He's amazing. (laughs) He's cute. He's funny. He's an easy one. I'm blessed. He's a really good boy. Like, yeah. I mean, he's tantrum central at the moment, but they're funny as well. Yeah. So how's it being a mother at 50? How's that feel? Um, I'm sure if I'd have had him at 20, it would have been a completely different experience and I probably would have had more energy, but I'm physically fit and do yoga, do go to the gym, do my running and all of that. So I'm physically strong. I think probably energetically just turning 50 and probably a little bit lower energy than I would be at 20. So I'm sure I would have been less tired at 20, 30 than I am at 50. Um, but equally, I don't think I would have been a great mum at 20 or even 30. You were in Japan, right? Pole dance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is that. But I also was kind of sometimes a lot reckless, probably wouldn't have done the responsibility thing very well. I'd have probably been like, oh, just can you look after my Ziggy for a bit with like any old bugger, you know. But I think that now, of course, I'm older and wiser and I can be a better mother because I've got the, the wisdom that I didn't have at 20 or even 30. I'm not saying that it's always easy because it isn't because I do sometimes get tired, but I I feel like I'm better prepared now because of my life experience and I can show up as a more conscious human being for him. Oh, that's lovely. So what advice would you give somebody who has an idea, be it they want to become a yoga teacher or open a yoga studio or start on some kind of path that feels so overwhelming that it's kind of paralyzing them? Um, I'd say just do it. I'm, I'm a just do it woman, but I'm really fortunate that I have never thought about the fear of failure. And I read somewhere that entrepreneurs tend not to have this fear of failure and they kind of go for things because fear is crippling and it gets in the way of our dreams because it stifles us and it's the kind of what ifs, what ifs, you know, it can stop you progressing along that path. So you definitely need determination and you need to be able to step forward and not have this kind of fear of failure. Um, But it's easy for me to say that because it's not something that's in my makeup, like maybe because of my father and all of that. I think it's just about believing in yourself, isn't it? And believing that you can do it and then cracking on with it. For me, it's that simple. It's like, right, just just get on with it. And I, I like a project. 
And Mm -hmm. I I probably don't do so well when I don't have a project. I like to have something that I'm working on creatively and, you know, having a goal and working towards something. So it is something that comes quite naturally. Um, And I think that for somebody that's thinking about something, put it on paper, try and make your steps towards it, have a plan and stick to the plan and keep chipping away you know don't don't get stagnant just start it do it now mm-hmm. and then when shit hits the fan so if something happens externally for you like you told me something recently and it involved losing a lot of cash in one of your businesses what happens within you within your mind and how do you take actions in response to those kind of things happening there's nothing that you can do about it is there so i i have had a situation with work where I've, I've lost a lot of money but I'm okay with that I made peace with that very quickly and you can't dwell on the fact that you've tried something and it hasn't worked out you've just got to then say well I tried I did my best for whatever reason x y and z this time isn't working out and come to terms with that quickly don't ruminate in it and on to the next thing that life is too short to worry about the mistakes that you've made or the, or the failures that you possibly do make. You just have to get up and brush yourself off and start again. Perfect. That's amazing. I think we'll leave it there. <laughs> Such wisdom, you wise woman. Oh, thank you, my darling. And so are you. I'm so fortunate to have you in my life. And you've been with me for a lot of this journey and very much one of my closest. And it's because of you and your lovely Chris that my life is happier with you in it oh love you thanks for having me on (laughs) it's been a pleasure we might get you back to do a part two in season two because I still have a list of so many more things I'm like this is going to be really long if I keep going so yeah maybe next time next time I'd love that (laughs) thank you Ali bye as we come to the end of another episode I want to remind you that the only way to make your dream a reality is through consistent action. You have to keep showing up and this is no easy task, which is why I'm here three times a week inspiring you to align with your purpose, act with intention and start making shit happen. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe and spread the love, share it with your friends and family. I'd really appreciate it. And if you have an idea you'd like me to discuss, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you're interested in my coaching, I'm currently offering one-on-one online sessions. You can drop me an email at lisahorgan at pm.me to book a free introductory session. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.